Let's read from Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we confront something as devastating a commentary on humanity as this, we pray that you would teach us what we need to know, that this may not be said of us. Amen. So I wonder if you think that's a description of life today, that verse there. Because you can certainly find a bucket load of information to support the argument that it is an accurate description of today. All you have to do is listen to the news. But it is, of course, a description of the time of Noah. And you know what? The Lord was very unhappy about it. In Genesis chapter 6, and we're mostly in Genesis chapter 6 today, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. That's about as deep a sigh as you can do. So the Lord said, hmm, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I created and with them the animals and the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. Can you identify it all with the Lord and that sense of deep regret there? I mean, we have, sh we have times where we know, like, you made that beautiful sandcastle on the beach, you just got it all right and somebody came along and stomped through it or you just cleaned the floor and someone walked in with the boots on or that favourite piece of china handed down from grandma, the royal Dalton, gets knocked carelessly on the floor and smashed. We've got some trivial things like that in comparison with the enormity of a beautiful and a pristine world be spoiled by the tenants from hell. And the tenants part is like us, isn't it? Living in a world... We didn't create what we live in, did we? We don't own it. We're just tenants here. And those of us who have rental properties know what it's like to have a good or a bad tenant. Well, in that time, there were tenants who, if they were not from hell, they were certainly bound to end up in hell, and we find them in verse 1 and 2 of Genesis 6. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. You see a little phrase in there, the sons of God. Who are they? Well, none of us were there, so we don't know for sure. But the most common interpretation is that these are fallen angels or those evicted from heaven along with Lucifer. Now, we don't know how they did it because an angel is not a human. But somehow they found a way to take human form and make children. And, and as we know, like father, like son, we can assume that the wickedness of that time was due to these people, to sons of God. 
And we know also that they somehow were able to enhance humans by the process. And we see in verse 4 there, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. And they were heroes of old, men of renown. You know, all those ancient Greek myths and fables like Hercules and so on seem to have sprung from these unions with the sons of God. So the first thing that God did about that was he curtailed lifespans. You look back in Genesis 5, you see people living for hundreds of years. But in verse 3 he said, chapter 6, Then the Lord says, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days now will be limited to 120 years. And God's first thing was to limit the time that he would have to put up with this wickedness. Maybe he was hoping that would diminish the evil. But the situation just carried on. Verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and it was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And I wonder just how enormous is that description. I wonder that the enormity of evil in its full-fledged expression and I notice in particular that violence was a main fruit of evil. The earth was full of violence. And I see people wanting to have the things their way and violently, becoming more violently, wanting to express it in, in what we see on our TV screens. And I, I can't help but wonder how it is that people don't see that they're evil at their blind spots, their delusions. And I wonder how people can't see, like, for example, that killing defenceless children in a womb is wrong. How attacking a church you brought into the world hospitals, chaplains and schools, Christianity, how they can't see that attacking that is wrong. How they can't see that Sharia law which oppresses women is desperately wicked. And you could, that list could go on, couldn't it? We see people are just blinded. They're blinded by their desires for pleasure and comfort. They're blinded by strong religious ideas. They're blinded by philosophical ideas. They're blinded by just self-centeredness and wanting to be God themselves. And they're bound, they're, they're blinded by disobedience, disobedient desires to follow their own whims and fancies without restrictions or boundaries to just exercise my rights. And I'm just really thankful for God that he only took the remedial step he took in that time just the once. Because I find in myself tendencies towards evil that are far easier to see in other people, of course, but we all have it in ourselves. And, and if God removes all the evil in the world tonight, who would be at church next week? Verse 13, so God said to Noah, look, I'm going to put an end to this, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. 
I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And then I'm going to bring flood work. Well, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. We don't have any clues about the dialogue between God and Noah when he gets told this. We, we don't know much ab about how he would have process processed the significance of hearing something like this. We could imagine that we might, ourselves might have said, what? You mean all my relatives are going to perish? You mean everything in my country is going to die out and the next country? Man, that is huge. Before we look at how he escaped from that massive disaster, look at the solution God offered to Noah. Let's hear a little bit more about those times in verse 27 of Luke. We go all the way to Luke. People were eating, drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. And are you you're struck by the parallels with today? People didn't consider themselves evil. They were just getting on with life as usual. They were eating, they were drinking, getting married. Life, no reason why we couldn't see that life just carries on. So in the face of that, do you think Noah was keeping quiet about what God had told him? And do you think people didn't notice him building over a period that could have been 50, it could have been 75, up to 100 years? It was 120 years from when God first uh, told him to build the ark to when it was built. Do you think they wouldn't have noticed this big preacher's object lesson? A boat the size of one and a half gridiron fields? as wide as a semi-trailer with two bogies on the end? How in their face would that have been? And he preached because we know that from the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. If he didn't spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. There it is. He was a preacher. He's saying that as he built, he preached about righteousness because he knew what was coming and he was not silent about it. And that's a challenge for us too because we know what's coming. We shouldn't be silent either. But there was a flood coming and Noah had a task. Verse 14, back in Genesis, chapter 6. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Well, go for wood. The best guess is that it was cypress. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. A cubit is measurement from here to here. So obviously it varied a little bit between country to country. And make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all the way around for ventilation and light getting in. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower and middle and upper decks. 
Now, the, the Hebrew word for ark is tabor, and it means, actually, a box. A box. It's only used in two places. The other place in the Old Testament is the box that they put Moses in to keep him safe from the Egyptians. And if you're thinking, what about the box or the Ark of the Covenant? Well, they use a different Hebrew word for that. So, it's a box. A box. In God's infinite knowledge, the dimensions of this rectangular box are six times long and one time wide. A dimension which in shipbuilding today is known as the most stable way to build a ship. Because there's no mention of a rudder, there's no motor, there's no sails, it's a box as stable as possible to survive the storm. And God wanted it waterproof, so it was to be coated with pitch, and the same word for pitch is the word for atonement. It was to be smeared with pitch, was smeared with the atonement of God, so that its crew might survive the flood. And because it seems like the boat was a, a box, it was able, because it allowed to carry a third more cargo than a normal boat with a sloping hull and a pointed front would have. It was essentially a floating barge, a large barge, as big as a cargo ship, with the capacity, how much could you put in it? You could put in about 125,000 sheep-sized animals in it. Pretty big, isn't it? So the cargo to go in it, Two of all living creatures, and in some cases seven pair, because they would need some for sacrifices when the flood was over. You see that in 6 verse 19. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive through the earth. And we take note of the supernatural power of God in this process because Noah didn't go out on extended journeys to find the animals. The animals came to him. He just had to show them where to go in the ark. You see that in chapter 6 verse 20, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. And later we find that Noah didn't close the door of the ark. God did that too. In verse 16, the animals were going, going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah and then the Lord shut him in. So we've seen so far everyone was evil and the Lord was going to destroy all of them except for eight, eight people. So I was listening to a sermon by a Chinese preacher, Joseph Prince, as I was researching this sermon. And he said that the Chinese language, which is one of the oldest ones still around, actually had in it, in the ancient stories, stories of a flood. And he talked about as they developed their language and uh, 
came up with the symbols in their language, talked about the symbol in Chinese for boat, which looks like that. That's the symbol. Now, it's a pictograph made up of three parts, and you know what the three parts are? On the next one is a vessel. Is that part? There's eight people. Eight people in a boat. That's just an interesting little confirm confirmation in the extra-biblical world of the truth of, of, the, of the gospel. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wife, that's eight people, entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Now, let's remember how they got there. They got there because their leader, Noah, had obtained God's favour. 6 verse 9, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless among the people of his time and he walked faithfully with God. And verse 8, but, God found, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. So he found favour. And because he finds favour, God made a promise, a covenant with Noah. This covenant starts with God, it's from God, it's unilateral, it's unconditional. God is the one who initiates the covenant. There's no action or intervention on, at all on the part of Noah or his family. And God in that covenant makes the promise that he will never again destroy the earth and cut it all off with a, with a universal flood. And it's 100% from God. It's God's grace. It's not conditioned at all on anything the man must do. And he makes that covenant, in fact, after acknowledging that man's heart is still inherently evil. Verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And when Noah had followed through on God's instructions and when his, he and his family had been through building the ark over those 50, 70, 500 years after the 14 days and nights of rain after the floating around for almost a year in until the water comes back down and the dry land comes through. After all that, we get in chapter 8, we skip through to chapter 8 now, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of the clean animals and birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. And yet when covenants, promises like this were made back in those days, they often had some physical thing that went with them. And for the Jews, the most obvious sign of that was a circumcision. And in Noah's case, God had a very special sign. Part of the significance of that sign is its relationship to rain. There's good biblical justification for saying <coughs> the rain actually hadn't occurred before this time. You go back to Genesis 2.6, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And there, there's a mist talks about in other places. And, and the thought is there was, there was possibly some permanent or canopy of water around the earth, creating a sort of greenhouse effect on the earth's climate. 
And it would be these waters that were released causing the flood. Because it seems that before the flood there was dew and there was ample water supply, but not rain. But whatever actually was, because once again we weren't there, we've all seen the sign that God referred to this new covenant and he made with Noah, and that was the rainbow. In chapter 9, we look to find that, verse 13. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I'll see it and I'll remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind. And so God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. And so from this time on, God had to find another way to deal with evil, didn't he? Other than a worldwide flood. He had to find another way to save people apart from an ark. And we take note that although he did find another way by sending his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life, we take note that this dramatic story of being rescued from a storm in a boat is a vivid and dramatic picture of the salvation which is found in Jesus. It's a vivid picture of the reality that Jesus, that sent Jesus to the cross to die as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. But as it was in the times of Noah, so it is now. Genesis 3.5 God saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. It's a pervasive kind of evil, abounding, and people are oblivious to their condition, and they are carrying on as though everything is normal. In fact, they're having such a good time, they think that even going to hell, should there be such a mythical place, well, it'll just be a continuation of the party. Luke reminds us people were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage up to the day when Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. And Jesus is coming again one day to judge the living and the dead. He is delaying because he's not willing for any to perish, but rather because he wants as many as possible to have saving faith in him. And the delay is not a sign of him being weak, it's not a sign of, of indecision. It's an opportunity for us to spread the good, the good news about Jesus, to spread the news that an end is coming. It's an opportunity to turn your life around and get on the new improved ark, which is the Jesus is Lord ark. And it's also an opportunity to be a Noah. How do you be a Noah? Well, think about this. Chapter 6, verse 22. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And as regular churchgoers, we know plenty 
about God wants us to do. And the challenge from Noah is, are we doing it? Can it be said of us, as it was of Noah, that we did everything just as God commanded us? And there's one more point to make this morning, and that is about life in the ark. Those of us who are saved who are in the ark of Jesus is Lord until he comes to wrap up history. And think about what it was like. Noah and his family on that ark for roughly 11 months after the rain stopped. What would it have been like? Cooped up in an animal. In an animal, cooped up in an ark with all those animals. No way to remove the waste. Hmm, bit of methane generated there. And think about what was going on outside the ark with the rotting flesh of billions of people and animals. Friends, as Christians, we are all in the ark together. And we are not always light and perfume to one another, are we? Eventually, we rub someone up the wrong way. Eventually, a toe is stepped on. Eventually a comment is misunderstood or an intention is expressed the wrong way. An opinion is shared unkindly and at the wrong time. Or a task someone forgets to do is perceived as an affront. Someone has said, you know, we wouldn't be able to handle the stink within if it wasn't for the storm without. Let us not forget that we are all together in an ark until Jesus returns. And let's not gather and huddle in small groups in little corners of the ark, the charismatic corner or the traditionalist corner or the anti-this heresy corner or the anti-that heresy corner or the I want the ark to be more like this corner. Let's work and remember our job is to overcome all the things that have that seem to legitimate, legitimate themselves as reasons to put a barrier between our fellow Christians. Let's not do that. Let's not hide in a corner. Let's make sure, as Hebrews 10.25 says, that we are not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. For make no mistake, the day is approaching. And let us be in the ark, not outside the ark of Jesus. Let us be living a righteous life, doing all that God commanded us. Let us not be living, eating, drinking, marrying, giving no heed to God's call to live a righteous life. Let's pray. To be confronted with the immensity of what you did before at the time of the flood, Lord, this gives us an indication of how deeply you are concerned about whether or not we're living a righteous life. And we want to remember that and take stock in this moment that we're not huddling in a corner of the ark 
wanting things to be the way we want them. That we are not living as though this will go on forever. But that we are taking up Noah's example to live a righteous life, to walk with the Lord and to do everything that God commands us. And so to that end we praise your holy and wonderful and awesomely mighty name. Praise the name of Jesus. Praise the name of God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.